Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. Five years ago, I convened a roundtable of comics bloggers and cultural critics to have a Martin Luther King Day roundtable about the X-Men. I wanted to address how the common comics understanding of Charles, Xavier, and Magneto's conflict as a metaphor for the difference in civil rights approaches between MLK and Malcolm X was really misguided. It didn't recognize the radicalness of King or the strategic organizing of Malcolm X, who never actually stole any nuclear warheads or wrote his name in the sky using metal fragments or any of that stuff, which, you know, made for good comics, but really did not capture his politics in the slightest. Since then, I think we've heard a lot less of that conversation, which is a sign of progress. Um... And since then, a lot of things have happened in the X-Men comics. Professor X, Magneto, and even Apocalypse have gone on to establish a mutant homeland in the new current series of X-Men, which has been a really interesting political conversation um, and has the opportunity for really awesome storylines that we've discussed recently on the podcast. Uh, You can listen to that in just a couple episodes back, and you'll get to hear me discuss uh, Jonathan Hickman, Leniel Francis Yu, and Company's X-Men with Jamel Bowie of the New York Times and Spencer Ackerman of the Daily Beast in uh, an episode coming out very shortly. But today is MLK Day, so take a seat and listen to a special vintage episode of Graphic Policy Radio. Thanks. It's Monday night, and that means it's the latest episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics, geekdom, and politics. This is the show for folks who wondered what the Crimson Guard was doing in Ukraine recently. On tonight's special roundtable episode, we're joined by a chorus of acclaimed individuals to examine the X-Men, Professor X, Magneto, and the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. So tonight we're joined by quite a few folks. We have uh, Steve Adwell, a political and union activist. He holds a PhD in history from the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's the founder and writer of Race for the Iron Throne, as well as the Realignment Project. Also, David Brothers. David works for a comics publisher, blogs about stuff at ForthTheLetter.net, and tweets about everything at, at Hermanos. Find his life story at IamDavidBrothers.com. We also have Gene Demby. Gene is an American writer and journalist and the lead blogger for NPR's Code Switch team. Um, Emma Hubu has been on the show a few times. Um, she is a queer blogger for Higher out of Vancouver, British Columbia, most recently attached to Girls Read Comics. Uh, you can follow her at Emma Hugu, but we'll be tweeting all that. So you can follow that. Uh, finally is Ken James, a blogger who writes on race, comics, television, and more for Racialicious. You can follow her at, well, we'll you'll see it in a few minutes on her Twitter feed. Uh, unfortunately, Aaron Rand Freeman had to cancel uh, due to illness, but he will be joining us for a future episode. And as we kick it all off, I'm joined by my... Uh, right-hand person, uh, the person who pulled this all together, my co-host, Alana. Hi, thanks, everyone. So um, I'm really excited to have everyone who's joining us today here. With, uh, I have just a little bit of context for me. When I was in junior high, people who weren't comics fans didn't regard comics as a serious art form. Most of the world hadn't picked up on Neil Gaiman yet. And one of the justifications I always gave for why comics were a legitimate intellectual interest was, much like science fiction, they were a great way of exploring important social issues with a fresh set of eyes. And the example I always pointed to was how the struggle for mutant rights in the X-Men books was a parallel for the African-American civil rights movement. Now, my other comics reading friends and I would always discuss two things. One, how to cast the X-Men movie, and we were certain that Danzig would be Wolverine. Two, 
that Professor X was a metaphor for Martin Luther King Jr. I know a lot more about Martin Luther King Jr. now, and I think the junior high era Ilana was wrong. Martin Luther King's vision is far more radical than Professor X's, and I mean that in a good way. Hello, Professor X collaborated with the FBI. He deliberately passed as a non-mutant for decades. Meanwhile, J. Edgar Hoover was calling MLK the quote-unquote most dangerous Negro alive, and MLK correctly criticized so-called moderates for his being obstacles to equality. And he was in the middle of launching a poor people's campaign when he was assassinated, surprise, surprise. Now, of course, how Professor X has written changed over time, and how history is understood Martin Luther King has changed over time. So there's a lot to talk about since junior high, and I convened some of the most esteemed geeks together today so we can hash this out, now that we're grown-ups and, you know, actually know stuff. So what do you guys think? Uh, well, this is Stephen Atwell. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about Xavier especially is, and I, I'm not sure how much of this is a genre problem, he clearly is not a social movement leader because he spends most of his time you know, leading his team in paramilitary operations. Uh, <laughs> but the, the rare times in which he is acting politically, it's very much in the mode of a public intellectual. You know, his first move when uh, the Sentinels are announced is to go on TV and debate uh, Trask over, you know, the, the, uh, how the public should respond to mutancy. Um, and we see this uh, again later on when Magneto is actually put on trial in The Hague. Uh, oh, sorry, not in The Hague, in the uh, Palais de Justice in Paris, uh, where he acts as an advisor to the defense uh, on the argument that sort of public education is the, um, the sort of the way that, you, that mutants should deal with the fear and the hatred and paranoia of uh, human beings. And, you know, on the other hand, I can see how there's a kind of sanitized I have a dream king in there somewhere because the, the phrase Xavier's dream uh, becomes a trope throughout the series of the X-Men. Um, although I would, I would point out there's kind of this weird convergence between a belief that mutants and humans should sort of coexist as equals and a refusal to kill, uh, that like, you know, people have debates throughout the Claremont era, whether X-Men should kill and whether you can kill your enemies and still uphold Xavier's dream. Uh, this is David Brothers. Uh, do you know about when in the comics the phrase Xavier's Dream started appearing? Uh, it was definitely during the uh, Chris Claremont's run. It was not during the original, um, the original Stan Lee, Jack Kirby run. Um, I would huh. say it's around, it, it's like one of the times in which Xavier quote-unquote dies, um, that they begin talking about his dream in the past tense. Um, and in general, that's something that, that I've noticed because I've just done a read-through of all, um, from the beginning all the way to the end of, of uh, Claremont's run, is that um, there's, there's more of an emphasis on, um, on Xavier's dream and on the, the sort of quote-unquote mutant question as a political issue in the Claremont run, especially starting around like 1980. Um, Emily, okay. I just wanted to 
Um, I just want to point out, I don't know that there's necessarily a dichotomy between uh, a paramilitary action and being a social, uh, like being a political um, activist. Cause I, th- I think we've seen, and especially the second half of the 20th century, a lot of um, leaders or attempted leaders who tried to straddle that divide, you know, either successfully or not. And it's, it is a, there's a great deal of tension in those two positions, but I don't know that they're necessarily one cancels out the other or that you can't look at um, Xavier being, you know, a leader for social change being contingent on whether or not he was involved in paramilitary action. But um, in the sense of, you know, Martin Luther King and a lot of the other civil rights movement leaders of that era being, you know, staunchly pacifist or, about civil disobedience, it certainly does um, open up a good question there where is that too much of a divide for it to be an effective metaphor or for, you know, King to to be used in that way? Um, oh, this is Kendra. Um, also, during the Claremont run, I haven't read it in a really long time, but correct me if I'm wrong, didn't a lot of the sort of social metaphors um, issues sort of switch over to Kitty Pride at at one point? Yeah, she's she's very often used as the, the mouthpiece for, uh, you know, in part because she sort of represents uh, young people um, and sort of a, a, a younger generation. She's often the, the sort of the mouthpiece for... Um, for kind of a lot of these analogies. And the interesting thing is, and, and this is why, you know, in, in terms of the question of sort of the larger issue of what role do mutants play within the Marvel universe, it's very much filtered through this lens of the Jewish experience of the Holocaust, because one of the things that, that Kitty Pride frequently brings up in debates in these comics is, you know, parallels between arguments for sort of, you know, genetic purity and, you know, the, the, the Holocaust, especially starting with the famous, you know, um, run, uh, the days of future past, which is sort of, uh, issue 141 of the, of the, uh, Claremont run, um, which is going to be the sort of jumping off point for the next X-Men movie that you can see these very strong parallels made between the Holocaust and, sort of the uh, the mutant uh, registration act that mutants are you know where jump you know in this sort of dystopian future of by the way 2013 um, mutants wear jumpsuits with M on the chest where you know otherwise uh, a yellow star would be and there's kind of a, a eugenics uh, part of the whole dystopian future in which for example, humans who happen to be carriers of the X gene are no longer allowed to have children in this kind of world ruled by sentinels. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's actually, that makes it a little bit more ironic that I think she's apparently been written out of Days of Future yep. Past for the film. Yeah. Um, but so I, I think that the using Xavier as a metaphor um, or looking at X-Men as a whole, as a metaphor for the civil rights movement, and even as a metaphor, clearly, for the Holocaust. It's useful 
when you're young, because I certainly looked at it that way, um, like you, Elena. Um, that was sort of my entree into it. However, looking at it like that now just seems sort of, it really does look juvenile um, to me, even if that's what it's meant to be, only because as you grow up, you have a much greater understanding, like you were saying, of the real issues, and you come to realize that there's a clear difference between a fictional telepath and an actual black man. <laughs> if you sort of see, <laughs> if you sort of see where I'm getting at. Yeah, right. this is uh, Gene. Oh, go for it. I'm sorry, go. Okay, uh, this is Gene Demby um, from NPR. Uh, yeah, one of the the ways that metaphor breaks down is that um, blackness is not necessarily inherently a destabilizing force in the social order, right? Um, whereas, you know, a bunch of people who um, have the capacity to theoretically like level city blocks, right, are people you might want. There might be actually a government and public interest in um, knowing who they are and knowing where they can go, right? Um, and so, you know, it's one of the huge problems with that metaphor, um, even though it is very useful, as you said, for young people, it, in terms of uh, kind of, um, uh, it, it, you would, it, it seems to make sense that uh, the public in the Marvel Universe might be fearful of people who, um, could, could, who are essentially walking weapons. Right, right. And I think also, um, I don't know, in the recent, I haven't read, I haven't been reading X-Men currently, but sort of the last, the most effective sort of use of this metaphor that I guess I've seen recently was when, I want to say it was Peter David writing Madrox. Um, that was when they were all stuck in sort of Newton Town, which I guess was supposed to be somewhere down on the Lower East Side um, in New York City, and they were essentially all in Newton ghettos. And that was sort of the last time that I remember it really being emphasized that um, that they were a different class of people. And I, I guess now I read Wolverine and the X-Men, and it doesn't really come up all that much anymore. It, it sort of seems like things would become a little more fun and lighthearted, but that just could be what I'm reading. Well, the other part of that is um, kind of what they did with, with what mutants are supposed to represent, because in the aftermath of the Age of M, um, the number of mutants was reduced from a sort of a noticeable proportion of the population to, you know, a few hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a, in a way they've kind of jettisoned this, um, the, the viability of this analogy. Uh, the, the other interesting you know question is that, that other people brought up is whether this is instead the, the extent to which um, analogies to the gay rights movement are used instead, because you know there's a very strong um, kind of symbolic parallels and timing parallels with the AIDS sort of panic of the early '80s and the uh, argument by some conservatives at the time that that, um, that gay people with AIDS should be registered and you know have numbers tattooed on them. Um, and putting so camps, they also suggested that. Yeah, so, you know, it potentially could be that as well. Um, although there was, I remember this really weird thing um, of in, in the early Stanley era of latent mutants existing in the population um, who, you know, may not ever express their mutancy, which in any case, 
first becomes noticeable upon uh, puberty. So there's kind of a sort of a sublimated sort of sexual awareness thing going on there too. Well, I um, think that I, I think I have to say that the legacy virus was pretty clearly yeah. an AIDS metaphor itself, mm-hmm. and 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 that represented a, a generational shift um, where they were moving away from the original, you know, say Holocaust and um, civil rights movement metaphors, and and onto something separate and different. And that's kind of the the accidental magic of superhero comics is that you can make a, a blunt and and honestly, pretty stupid metaphor um, like that, and it can actually carry forward in some interesting ways because, you know, the civil rights movement, after a certain point, I mean, that was to address very specific types of social control that the state was putting on the black population. And over time, as the mutant uh, metaphor shifted, the the types of social control that we're seeing um, aimed at those same populations have taken on a very different character. If you know, we look at mass incarceration and the war on drugs and these kind of things. So the popular emphasis, what was right in front of people's faces was, you know, the queer metaphor, but it opens up a whole new um, kind of potential for era of storytelling where we look at characters within the X-Men that by that point, they have this huge back backbench of supporting characters who are, who are black, who are white, who are um, Asian Latino, uh, who represent just about every single group under the sun. And we realize that, you know, people can be more than one thing. And there's, there's become now a great potential that's, I think, still largely being squandered to start to look at mutancy as being an opportunity to discuss intersectionality um, and mm. maybe especially intersectionality in the queer community, but as part of a wider dialogue within um, progressive groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. That's really cool because one of the things that's sort of interesting or odd about the way that the sort of X-Men have have changed over time is that the X-Men are located in Westchester County, and they are Mm -hmm. passing. And then in the Claremont run, we get the emergence of the Morlocks in the sewers of New York who are mutants who can't pass um, and who don't have access to you know, social, cultural, and literal, you know, capital, um, which is kind of an interesting example of, of intersectionality there in that, you know, all, uh, not all mutants, you know, experience anti-mutant hysteria in the same way. Yeah, but I think, yeah, think um, the X yeah. metaphor that we were talking about, how it kind of represents all these different things at different points in time, is a uh, gift and a curse. Because if you look at the early Stan Lee stuff, I mean, they're basically talking about communism in a way. Like, if you just do, like, a whack mm, line replace yeah. communism and mutants. Uh, and then when Claremont comes on, the way they talk about mutants changes. It becomes less, uh, we are superior and more like, you know, we're not going anywhere. I think that's how uh, those different struggles, excuse me, came into play. Then, as you get older, you start to realize that it's not as simple as you know good versus evil, and that's why the metaphor eventually breaks, and or why we feel that it might be insufficient. Almost like the delivery system is—it's uh, not the best way to talk about those subjects on any kind of deep level, 
but in terms of giving someone confidence or uh, support when they need it, you know, letting them draw that out, it's very good at that. Mm. Right. I mean, okay. I guess. Oh no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, do we think that they tried to continue that with the movies, which sort of introduced um, the, the characters to an entirely new generation? Because that's certainly, I didn't read X-Men comics uh, before the movies mm-hmm. came out, and I sort of started after that and then went into the cartoons. And actually, the cartoons don't really, or the cartoon that I watched, X-Men Evolution, didn't really address this metaphor at all. So mm-hmm. that's just some Wow. Well, the, yeah, the second I mean, one the, did for sure. <laughs> yeah, the second yeah. and the third, unfortunately, the third. Right. Um, <laughs> although, like, it seemed to be more strongly kind of on the on the gay angle as opposed to the civil rights angle, because the big trope of the second and third movies is the whole question of could you can you cure it and should you, if you can, cure the the you know X gene? Um, and there's this one bizarre moment where. Um, a, a real research failure where someone says that the the X gene is actually only found it, sorry is passed down on the male side, which would mean that female mutants would be impossible. So it's so a mixed <laughs> metaphors. Well, cisgender ones anyway. Um, but yeah. yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, it, the the first two X Men movies and of course the next one were all directed by an openly gay director. Right. right. So you kind of get scenes like that in the second movie where, you know, Iceman's mother, she says, have you ever tried not being a mutant? And we all know what that means, you know, and 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 Joss Whedon's cure, um, you know, like that you created for Astonishing Iceman that they used um, as the main threat in the third one. Like it's it's ex-gay therapy. Like that's I'm pretty sure that's exactly what that's meant to be. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I I love what they've done with the parallels between um, the LGBT rights movement and LGBT rights issues and mutant issues, but I keep worrying that the farther they that they it gives people an excuse to not talk about like the ongoing racial oppression in America. Like we got to have both of these things going on, and it feels like people have almost dropped the racial parallel from the comic entirely. Well, I mean, that's partially because, I mean, I think the the comic the comics industry kind of knows that the books uh, that have predominantly POC characters, unfortunately, don't last very long. I mean, Fearless Defenders just ended after 10 or 12 issues. Um, over at DC, Katana only lasted like a year. Um, so, I mean, it, unfortunately, they're kind of they're kind of playing to their main demographic. Well, it's the Republican curse, isn't it? <laughs> the you know, and you see that more at DC, where they're kind of doubling down on what they perceive to be their essential base. But I oh. think the water. I don't know that we should be using um, these type of fantasy tropes as a metaphor for race. I think, especially now that we have the racial diversity within the superheroes, we should be allowing the modern issues. Of, of of racism and these kinds of prejudices to be told by the people who effectively, you know, suffer them. We're in a, a liberal enough society now that we don't have to hide these behind metaphors like they did with nursery rhymes where you were going to be dragged out and shot if you alluded to these things. So 
you know, and, and that's something that Juno Diaz has been saying a, a lot lately where he, you know, he's looking around the um, fantasy in general and you have all these stories being cast as being or perceived as being totally white, whether it's Katniss Everdeen and in, in, in the Hunger Games or the eugenics programs and slavery and Dune and all this. And they're all deeply informed by different, you know, kinds of, of racist and, and, and genocidal um, type of things, but it all relies on this conceit of we need to pander to to white children or to privileged children, depending on what the metaphor is, mm. uh, by saying, what if this was you on the target end instead of allowing these stories to be told organically and directly, which I don't think should there should be any barriers towards. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that I think there's a little bit more I want to say sort of creative uh, complexity at various points in the sort of earlier Claremont era, because there's two scenes that, or two incidents that really jump out to me. One of which is um, in the same issue in which uh, Xavier is quote unquote muty bashed is beaten on the street for being a mutant. Um, Kitty pride is sort of confronted by a gang of mixed race, People like you know some black people, some white people, some Latino people who are asking her if she's a mutant, and she responds by using the N word and says, "Well, are you blank?" And that was kind of a very shocking thing to to read when I was doing this doing this read through. And then the the other thing that's kind of interesting in how you can actually deal with these things in an interesting fashion, but there's still problems, is the invention of Genosha in the late 80s, this kind of uh, African republic that seems to be ruled mostly by white people that uses mutants as literal slaves, um, and that engages in aggressive military actions outside of its uh, own territory, seems to be a fairly open analogy for uh, apartheid South Africa. But Genosha, or at least states, that it has total racial equality because sort of the mudsill theory is in effect. So no matter what race you are, you're still a human and you can look down on this, you know, mutant property that is the basis of your economic and social system. So still problematic in that a lot of the like mutants are, in fact, the first mutant genotion that you meet is like this giant blonde-haired, uh, you know, muscle-bound white dude, but interesting nonetheless. Well, yeah, I mean, one thing we have to remember about Claremont is that he's made a, a lot of big and gregarious mistakes. Um, I mean, if, if you look at New X Men, for instance, some of the the bizarre and outlandish ways that you know he treated indigenous identity, um, you know. Uh, or the fact that he thinks, or he thought at the time that they speak Spanish in Brazil, um, Boy. or, or that, you know, he, he didn't know that Ileana's last name should be Rasputin or not, and not Rasputin. That there were, you know, like he, I, you know, I, I suppose he, he meant well, but there's a lot of pretty gregarious errors, and I, and that's the kind of thing where I don't know that he was the guy who should have been carrying the mutants forward into that next generation. Mm. 
have folks, did folks read the recent issue of, oh God, whatever, some ex-book or other where Alex Summers was saying that he didn't want to be identified as a mutant anymore and everybody was talking about like, well, you know, it's easy for him to say that since he looks exactly like, you know, every other cisgender white dude walking down the street. I'm sorry? Uh, That's Alex Summers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they've done this thing recently with, with Cyclops that like he's become more of, I guess you could say, a mutant nationalist as opposed to an assimilationist. Yeah, no, I, I like, no, no, Alex Summers, Havoc, yeah. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, that, I thought that there was a really interesting conversation around that, but um, I don't know if, I, I know, I'm sure someone on this call has written about that. It was, um, it's the Rick Remender. Yeah. Um, yep, Uncanny Avengers. Right, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Um, yeah, no, I know that we did. We, we definitely talked about that. Um, yeah, I, so I, I don't like to be the person who says that maybe like a certain, a certain, just because they're a certain race, they shouldn't be writing about these sort of issues. Um, like may have been the case with, with Claremont. Um, because then you, I mean, you have writers, um, who can who I'm sorry, who helmed Ultimate Spider Man one, the reboot for that with Miles Bendis. Morales. Bendis. Yeah, Bendis. Bendis. You have Bendis. Like, yeah. Right. You have writers like Bendis who actually do like a fairly good job despite the fact that they're being white that they're white. But they do a great job because they take the time to sort of research, really think about what they're doing, ask questions, which a lot of people don't do for whatever reason. Um and then of course you do have people like Remender or like Claremont, who are just sort of stumbling their way through without without trying to um, without trying to help themselves. But I I think it's possible for everyone to sort of write every race. It's just a matter and every issue, um, and it's just a matter of people going out and trying to make the effort. Well, the, I think the most interesting thing about that incident was that you know a lot of people said, okay, well. Remender is writing Alex. That doesn't mean that he agrees with him because, of course, you know, Lex Luthor is not a metaphor for Grant Morrison every time Morrison writes him, right? But the interesting thing, I think, uh, from my perspective anyway, was that Remender actually got on Twitter and whatnot and said that, you know, he that he does stand behind Alex's position on that, um, which was the, the thing that kind of stunned me. But that's kind of where you run into a problem where a writer like Remender, who does not have that experience, you know, to where he's been subjected to a slur or a social construction of that degree, doesn't really have the kind of uh, traction to be saying, well, yeah, I, I think this is something where he can be taking a position outside the narrative. Yeah, yeah I was willing. To, uh, I was willing to believe that was just Alex speaking until Remender told me it was him speaking too, and I was like, "Oh God, that's awful." But it's tough, especially on issues like this um, that are so personal that we tend to assume, like even if someone you know never comes out and says what their motivations were, but we tend to assume that they're expressing their own point of view through the work, which like it's really hard to tell sometimes. I believe. Like, I have no idea what Claremont's personal politics are or any of those guys. But it's mostly like you just, if you can't see it on the page, like I have trouble uh, buying into it, if that makes sense. I mean, 
you can you can intuit a little bit from the text. I mean, it's pretty clear, for example, that you know Claremont usually, with the exception of this strange figure of uh, Senator Robert. Um, oh. Black. Kelly. Why am I forgetting his name? Kelly. Kelly. Thank you. With the exception of like Senator Robert Kelly, the anti-mutants are usually portrayed as explicit um, bigots. And there's kind of an interesting, there are some interesting kind of moments where real world politics really do cross over. So for example, uh, uh, in issue 150, where Magneto kind of issues this threat to the, the world powers. The artist clearly chose to have Reagan, Thatcher, uh, Brezhnev, and I forget who was the premier of China at the time, pictured on the page as people that Magneto was calling out for uh, essentially raising uh, levels of nuclear tension. Um, so, there, you know, you can see kind of hints and pieces then and there Another example that brings to mind is um, right after the the Days of Future Past storyline, uh, the character of Peter Henry Geirich is introduced as like the White House's anti-mutant spokesman, and he's I mean both in the name and like he's drawn with a flat top. He's pretty clearly a version of H.R. Haldeman. Oh yeah. Um, and, and you can see little things like that. Like, for example, I think it's just because John Birney was Canadian. Um, the X-Men comics really do not like, uh, Pierre Trudeau. Like they show him as like a used car salesman. It's very strange. Speaking of Canadians, we actually have one on the call, at least one, but, um, I we had a question from a listener. They wanted to know what Martin Luther King's policy on mind wiping Canadian mutants for their own good would be. That's a tough one. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. sorry. Wait, can you repeat? I didn't sorry, I didn't sentence. hear it. Sorry, yeah. I said. Um, uh, I one of one of our listeners asks. Um, they want to know what the, what you guys think Martin Luther King's policy on mind wiping Canadian mutants for their own good would oh, be. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no, I think. <laughs> I think you'd be against that. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm willing to go with that answer. I think that's someone who's really upset over the Olympics, over the hockey game. <laughs> that, that asked that. <laughs> good, good. Um, David, I, I wanted to bring back, there was an article that you wrote a while back that I thought just did the best job I'd seen of selling why... It was really preposterous and insulting to compare Magneto to Malcolm X. Now, I'm not particularly knowledgeable about, about Malcolm X, not as much as I am about Martin Luther King Jr., but I, I thought that your uh, – I really loved your article about it. I don't know if you want to just sort of reflect on some of the points that you made in that piece because I think it's just so, so darn good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I should say that I'm biased because, like, everyone has their favorite civil rights figure, and mine's definitely Malcolm X. Uh, so coming from that perspective, basically, like Magneto's never been anything but a villain. Uh, well, he's reformed occasionally, but like the core of his character at this point is that he's going to take over the world and make it a, I guess, a haven for mutant kind. And there are different nuances depending on who's writing him, how much of a cartoonish villain he is. But the main difference is that with Malcolm X, it was more about protecting yourself, your family, and your community. 
as opposed to taking over the world. And even mm-hmm. when, you know, like pre Hodge Malcolm X and that kind of thing, he was still very much a, uh, like a realist almost. Like he didn't want to overthrow the country. He was like, no, you're just going to give us what you said you would give us and what we deserve. And that's it. While Magneto, you know, like sinks nuclear submarines, things like that. So comparing the two, it's almost like comparing apples and oranges just because, like, there are bits of Magneto that have been inspired by Malcolm X, but there are also bits of Magneto that have been inspired by other people. Like, it's not a direct, uh, like, it's not Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King Jr. in the form of an X-Men comic, so much as it is they were influenced by the philosophies of those guys. I think that gets to also kind of the popular um, misunderstandings of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X as Mm -hmm. kind of, like, they're set up often as, like, opposite they're like as antipodes almost right and they yeah. you know they are obviously very very big differences in their philosophies well but there is not there's actually Martin Luther King again was like far more radical um than his than he's popular understood to be Malcolm X was much more pragmatic than he was understood to be as well um and you know Malcolm X was actually tremendously influential he wasn't just this you know this like guy out here in the woods or like on the on the fringes saying all the stuff I mean his rhetoric after he died, it became really important to the Black Power Movement. Um, and it became a really, you know, I mean, I guess you see that a little bit in X-Men comics where um, you see younger people kind of siding with Magneto. But Magneto's also a mass murderer, right? And that's the other part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, at, at various times, he's, like, you know, slaughtered lots and lots of people, right? Um, and it makes it hard to kind of, you know, it, 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 it makes it hard to empathize with him, even, you know, it, it, he, he almost is someone like, even if there's validity in his ideology, right? Um, it's really hard to understand. It's really, it would be really easy to understand why people thought he was a terrorist who needed to be neutralized, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the thing about Magneto that's, that's really odd, I mean, he really has transformed repeatedly throughout the series. He starts very much uh, as a sort of an almost snidely whiplash villain. He's constantly sort of berating his underlings and throwing them, you know, under the bus whenever, you know, he needs to. Uh, And in fact, the first time that he takes over any location, he he takes over this, this uh, Latin American Island. It's drawn as like an explicit Hitler parallel. You know, they've got Magneto on, you know, armbands. Uh, you know, they've got the M for Magneto on their armbands and they're wearing the stall helmets. And, you know, he's instantly throwing dissenters in jail. Um, but he's really reinvented by Chris Claremont to be a nationalist. And if there's any parallel between him and Malcolm X, it's just that they they both have elements of nationalism in their ideology. But, I mean, you could just as easily say, well, you know, by issue 150, when they bring up the fact that, you know, he was an Auschwitz survivor and that he met Xavier in Israel, that he's very much a Jewish nationalist of the the World War II generation, and that his 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 own politics are you know profoundly shaped by that generation's experience. And the the thing that I thought was really kind of a strange eye popping moment is in the same issue where he's threatening world leaders um, in the name of nuclear disarmament. He then explains to Cyclops that this is going to make them spend all of the money that they spend on war on ending poverty. Um, And he actually quotes the same, you know, I dream of a world that never was and ask why not 
thing that Robert F. Kennedy used to quote, except I don't think Robert F. Kennedy would, would threaten uh, both sides of the Cold War with instant uh, annihilation via, uh, well, basically natural disasters. But it seems like very much <laughs> the writers of, of the X-Men over time have not really understood what they want to do with this Magneto character, whether he's kind of this um, Miltonian villain, right? A villain that you can respect or admire or that is in some way impressive or a kind of sometimes a hero figure, right? He, I mean, he does uh, essentially become Xavier for a number of issues or a mass murderer. And it seems very much that the status quo constantly flip-flops. Can I just point out a different kind of um, one of the more interesting things that happened with the dynamic of marginalized communities and not necessarily the civil rights issue, but something that, that Grant Morrison and Matt Fraction have both done is that like Morrison kind of presented or anticipated Macklemore with John Sublime, right? Um, I, I think it was Sublime was behind this, the, the U-men, the guys who were who wanted to harvest the cool things about mutancy. Like they would take, if you had wings, they'd take your wings and graft them onto a almost human. And they would do all these things. And it, it, it kind of goes back to, to, uh, to Cornell West saying that, you know, that the white America has a love affair with, um, with black creative genius, but it seeks to erase the, the social misery that that creates it and and there's something to be said to a certain degree anyway um about queerness and that as well is that there's the social force that's seeking to um there's things that they like right if we talk about um you know cultural misappropriation is a big thing big talk of conversation on the internet these days where you talk about cultural artifacts that you know have deep meaning to given cultures but the dominant culture will just take them and say, this is cool. You know, we're going to take this um, from you because we can uh, sort of a thing. And, and they, they talk about under the guise of, you know, commercialism or, or capitalism or uh, the melting pot, but it's, it's in a lot of ways kind of an act of violence. And it's interesting how, um, how Morrison worked that in with the U men. And then you, you kind of see it again, um, in, in the Fraction and Brubecker run when they move to the West Coast and the mutants show up at this party and they're looking around and there's all these non-mutants who are essentially a mutant drag, these guys who are dressed up, you know, cosplaying Magneto and Xavier and, you know, and Emma Frost and these things. But it's not our world here where they're fictional constructs. These are, you know, people who are appropriating whole identities and treating them you know, like cultural products, these kinds of things. And everyone's looking around like, where the hell are we? What's, you know, what's going on? And it's, it's essentially, you know, uh, the kind of thing you would see with, with somebody like Macklemore Vanilla Ice who, you know, they skim the, the cream off the top of the milk and off they go. They're, they're easier and more palatable. They just kind of take, this is the cool part we want and leave the bad part behind you know, or not so the bad part, but the struggle or the things that they're complicit in. So I just thought that was another interesting dimension um, that's been added recently to the, to the legacy.
people feel like there's there... a civil rights leader who might be a better parallel in some ways? Well, not a civil rights leader, but a historic figure, in fact, more broadly, who might be a better parallel in some ways to Professor X? Um, uh, maybe... It'll sound like a joke, sort of... but J. Edgar Hoover. Ha-ha! Like, just in terms Hoover. of uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover being a parallel for Professor X, just because, like, they have their own dirty tricks committee, they have, you know, mountains of info, they're not afraid to use blackmail and that kind of thing. I think in terms of methods, they're much closer. I mean, I, I, I would say maybe W.E.B. Du Bois in the sort of the talented 10th thing, just because Xavier focuses, I mean, to the extent that he has a model for social change, it's very much, I'm going to take this particular group of mutants I'm going to train them to be ideals, and then they will kind of win over people by example. Um, I mean, I guess you could sort of throw in uh, uh, Booker T. Washington and sort of, you know, throw down your bucket where you are. Um, so maybe that's the closest? I don't know. Cyclops is definitely Dan Savage, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think all so many people things. having... <laughs> So many people having kind of guided the X Men thus far. Like I feel like the, there will never never be that one person that you can narrow down. Just because so you know, if uh, writer A is inspired by Booker T. Washington, writer B is inspired by uh, Langston Hughes or someone, then it's up to us as fans to kind of reconcile it. But you know, there's going to be gaps in our knowledge that we just can't fill in. Like it's always going to be kind of a best guess, best fit situation. Sure, sure. But doesn't Wolverine and the X-Men kind of, I mean, to me, look a little bit more like, say, the Black Panthers or something like that, where you had a group that was outwardly perceived as being militant or exclusively militant, but had very strong community ties and things that they were doing um, for, for children and communities, because that's kind of what Wolverine's, at least for a long time, I'm not reading Wolverine X-Men right now, but within the first year, he's running obviously a far more violent and fantastical group with X-Force, but then he's also the school teacher, right, where he's trying to um, balance those two sides where protect the children, give them a better future, but the idea of, well, what do we have to do or think that we're think that we may have to do in order to protect that. Like, do we have to be the thing that goes bump in the night as well as being, you know, the, the teacher or um, the role model? Mm. That's kind of the role that seems to recur in the comics. I mean, it used, that used to be Cable is that he was the, I mean, almost a literal like Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator style uh, military uh, sort of version of how to lead the mutants. Yeah, I like the Black uh, Panther program idea. That was an interesting comparison. Have they actually done much outreach outside of, outside of the uh, school? To other mutant families, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's things. more recently the use of um, Alcatraz as a mutant uh, sort of nation, 
I mean, I guess you could compare that to like the American Indian movement occupation in the seventies. I thought they were on asteroid M. That also happened at various times. Oh, were they, they were also in Alcatraz directly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. And and the X-Men in San Francisco have to, uh, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say also in the, the Claremont era, the, there's a period of time at which the X-Men are kind of the local civic heroes of San Francisco to the point where San Francisco police actually face down uh, federal officials who, you know, happen to be, uh, you know, mystique um, and, you know, former members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants um, and literally say like, well, you know, they may be federal fugitives, but here in San Francisco, they're, you know, they work with us, they help keep us safe, and we will sort of protect this oddball group. Um, so there's kind of a legacy of that. And they were welcome back during the Utopia uh, plotline as well with a similar role. I, I always thought that the modern Cyclops is predict- uh, being written by Bendis right now in Uncanny has more than uh, Che Guevara as far as influence and... Um, Acceptance in, in modern day social, where you know his image is being used on T-shirts to to hawk an idea that doesn't necessarily line up with the actual <laughs> philosophy of it all. Well, that's kind of a, a recursive, like a, a reuse of the same thing with Magneto um, in Morrison's yep. run. Though, yeah, exactly. That. Could the uh, asteroid M and uh, Alcatraz things, the uh, reference to the Jewish fortress uh, Masada as well. Do you all know that story? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah there, there's definitely an element of that, um, especially since, you know, Magneto also spends quite a bit of time um, as the ruler of Genosha uh, after the, the sort of apartheid regime is overthrown there. So, you know, arguably there's sort of a post-colonial uh, thing going on as well. Someone earlier said that the X-Men were, um, I guess, hiding the truth behind the metaphor, kind of about equal rights and basically using uh, the gay struggle or black struggle as grist for the mill. Do you think that's hiding, or is it just like in the usual influence these stories have, like they're drawing on real life? Well, I, I don't want to pretend intention on it. Um, yeah. But I think that, I mean... I don't know, being being a white queer, that's a little bit, um, I mean, I'm kind of in danger of overstepping, but I do know that I have at least one friend that, you know, when he goes to the toy store, you know, and, uh, you know, he's black and he wants to get toys for, you know, his cousins or his nieces or nephews, which we have, which I think we always have to position, remember that, that, you know, the X-Men and, and superheroes should always be accessible to kids, is that, Mm-hmm. You know, for kids to see that metaphor, they're they're not going to catch the metaphor. They're going to see a lineup of toys, and like nine of them are white. You know, because um, uh, Jamon Houston, who just joined the cast of Guardians of the Galaxy, said he took, you know, he took the role because his his son told him that he wanted to be light skinned because that's who Spider Man and all them look like. So I think there's kind of two sides to it. For us as adult mm-hmm. readers, maybe there's more leeway. But I think we, I, I think it's, we kind of, 
in the way that we're media savvy and kind of expect kids to be increasingly media savvy, um, there's the danger of being complacent and losing ground in relying on the metaphor. I mean, you know, I know for, for me, I, there was something growing up in the X-Men that I got, but I didn't know that it was queerness until much later. But if there was more foregrounding, I think on that end of the spectrum, you know, then I could have said, okay, no, I get this. That's what this feeling is. That's why I feel connected to this. But again, that's yeah, my perspective. Okay. I think it's, I mean, it's easier. I know we just, we uh, discussed this, Gene, on the, the NPR talk that you, that you facilitated, that it's easier for kids to sort of get into comics or through televised media only because the stuff aimed at children is always more diverse than the stuff that's aimed at adults. And it's sort of once you age up out of cartoons, um, if you, if you ever do, um, it's, it's a lot harder to find people who look like you in, in actual comics as opposed to cartoons. But Mm, for some reason that doesn't translate over always to the toy lines. The person behind uh, the Justice League cartoon, um, he very purposely uh, made John Stewart the Green Lantern in that series um, because uh, he wanted it to not be, you know, a bunch of black people and you know the Green Martian dude. Um, but you know, and and I guess what was interesting about the Green Lantern movie, the really bad one that came out a few years ago uh, with Ryan Reynolds was that uh, for a generation of kids who had been raised in the Justice League cartoon, Hal Jordan wasn't their Green Lantern, right? It was John Stewart. Um, and so there was a lot of, you know, we, we're adults, but like for a lot of people who are in their late teens, they had no reference for this guy. Like, who is this guy, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so it was this very kind of interesting kind of cultural moment in which they could not... There was a guy being thrust upon them almost by Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. Right. It was a huge well, mistake. Huge mistake. Yeah, it was actually funny because when I started reading Green Lantern when I was younger, John Stewart was still a guy in a wheelchair who was being seduced by some black alien lady, and I was really shocked when he ended up as the star of Justice League. <laughs> but but that was also I think the the choice to go with um, you know quote unquote Hal Jordan. On that had to do with, the, again, at DC at the time, because DC, um, that was at a time when they were growing an influence over the other media projects when Warner Brothers was starting to clue them in and people like, uh, John Sone were moving into roles where they were effectively discussing things and, and, and kind of shaping the direction the other media was going as opposed to where in the animation they could kind of make those decisions and see what would play in those groups. And that was at a time when Jeff Johns and some of the other writers um, at DC were, I think, not maliciously, but they were trying to restore the characters of their youth to primacy. And so mm. there was this great rollback um, of, of progress, really, and of representation, because you had guys like Kyle Rayner, who was introduced as white and was, and was perceived as white or white passing for a long time until you know, he realized that he had Latino heritage or, you know, you had guys like John Stewart who weren't necessarily the mainline Green Lantern, but they were there and present and they kind of got rolled back so that Hal, who 
you know, had gone out like a villain. You know, they, they wrote this big, great thing, this giant event to reform him and to take away the culpability of his crimes uh, to put him back on top. And I, I think these guys kind of said, well, we want them to look like they were when we were kids and maybe didn't see what the effects of that were. But I think maybe that's kind of what happened with that movie. Just some real metaphorical richness there, right? The white guy who gets to be absolved of all his, uh, of destroying a bunch of people and rampaging through the galaxy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The parallax run? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's great. That's a great point. I love it. That's so oh, the gentrification so of the DC universe. <laughs> <laughs> did, when you guys were reading X Men when you were younger, did were you guys all also debating this stuff with your friends, or was it like was that part of your interest in the in the series? If you I mean, it's funny because when you. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that it wasn't so much of a debate with us as it was that we were aware that we would read, I mean, my friends and I, we would read comics, we would watch the cartoons, and we were very aware that when it came to going out on the playground during recess, um, only one of us was going to get to be Storm. So, uh, <laughs> um, so there would be a fight, pretty much, you know, we would have, and this happened, I mean, this happened with every piece of media that we were into. I mean, there was one character of color, and we had to fight over who was going to be that person. And so that was sort of, I mean, I was like seven, eight, you know, fourth, fifth grade. So, but that was sort of the extent of our, of our debate. But it was definitely, it came up because it, it affected mm-hmm. us directly. Uh, for me, it was it was a much quieter thing in the sense of, um, trying to work out exactly why it was I wanted to be Mystique, <laughs> if that makes any sense. But so that wasn't like I got stuck being Cyclops all the time, um, you know. But uh, but that wasn't something that was something I knew I couldn't articulate yet, right? Huh. Um, I guess I guess in my case, um, I I always. I mean, you know, as, as a, you know, white dude, it wasn't really kind of like a personal thing, but I always did like the X-Men were always my number one favorite. I always found them more interesting. Well, I mean, that and Captain America, but that's for a whole other political reason that I've written about elsewhere. But I always found them more interesting than um, kind of less, uh, you know, uh, superheroes who, whose lives are less complicated. Yeah, I could, I've been, uh, I guess, interviewing people this month uh, for a, another comics podcast. And for years, I've been asking every black comics fan I know, what did they read as a kid? Just because I'm curious. And it's like 90% of us read X-Men as a kid. So I think there is definitely some kind of connection. Even if we couldn't, you know, like recognize the metaphor. Like there was something there that uh, spoke to people. So we didn't really debate it, but we appreciated it. And the X-Men were also more racially diverse as a team back, you know, than, than the DC teams were, you know, as oh, well. Yeah. Well, I think, this, yeah. I think this actually overstated quite a bit. Um, when we did our piece on recent comics, a lot of people were like, hey, no, when Giants has X-Men... They introduce this cast full of this this diverse international cast. I'm like, no, 
it was a bunch of white dudes in a storm. Like, that's what was happening. <laughs> it was a bunch of white dudes, and then there was a storm. There was Wolverine, who was Canadian, well, and Peter Rasputin, who was, Cana- uh, uh, who was Russian. Uh, they had uh, Thunderbird, but they killed him off really quickly. Uh, I think Sunfire yeah. may have been around, but he wasn't really around. Yeah. Um, uh, no, he quit. It was a like, bunch of white dudes in a storm, won. and so people hold her up kind of as, this, like, diversity talisman. Like, she... Uh, this is what was <laughs> happening, and it's a really forward thinking, but it wasn't really. And then, you know, you have the Psylocke stuff, where she was British, oh, and then God, she was yeah. Chinese. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a whole long parade of stupidness around race. Uh, well, it, it, it's Claremont's fetishes, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to go into Pretty clearly what his fetishes are through those characters and through the Hellfire Club and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was also like it was. I mean, it was the same thing with um, oh god, Mutant X. Was it Mutant X? What was the teen the teen book in the nineties? Um, oh, Generation X. Yeah, Generation yeah. X. Oh, okay. And yeah, I used to read that. And my favorite character was Sink. And I I think Sink is one of the very few like X Men characters who has been killed off and has just never come back. He's gone. Uh, he's a yeah. black man, and he's just dead. <laughs> Yeah. Every every other X Men gets the revolving door of resurrection. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite X Men teams is the uh, the original X Force, like the Rob Liefeld era, because like Sunspot was uh, Brazilian, Cannonball was from who knows where, Kentucky, but also Feral, the cat character, was like Bronx Puerto Rican, and it was one of the first teams I ever saw as a kid where it was like, hey, there's two different kinds of Latinos on this team. Like, it's not just you know, the same race. So, like, even when it was all white dudes, there were, like, moments of movement. Right. But it's few and far between. Well, it's like watching a basketball game, right? If if your starters are all white dudes and everybody else, like the women and, you, you know, the, the racial diversity stuff, they're coming off the bench, right? They're the reserves. They're not, you know, they're not the franchise players. Right. I mean, I guess to push back on that a little bit is just, and this is, you know, one of the things that I think the X Men movies kind of fell down on is how, I mean, before Chris Claremont gets really, really weird about it, Storm is a fascinating character almost from issue one and really a strong presence with, I mean, who becomes a leader very, very quickly. And she leads the X Men arguably, I mean, the, since, Giant size X Men number one. She led them more frequently than Cyclops did. I mean, yeah, she was she was kind of clearly pushed aside in the movies, but I mean, so was Cyclops. I would say. I mean, whether that was a function of that was actually supposed to happen, or the fact that James Marsden was just not interested. Um, or that he's a Wolverine inhaled everything. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but yeah, actually, yeah, well, I keep forgetting Wolverine is the, the focus of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> kind of interesting. It's yeah. the same phenomenon that happened with the comic books. It's like Wolverine starts out as this like weirdo character who the rest of them can't stand. And then really soon it's like you can double... I forget what the figure was, but like back during the day, you slap Wolverine's face on the cover and you like triple sales or something. So bizarre. Well, uh, yeah, there I mean, was a... even... 
like a net next wave, like Warren Ellis' series traded on that. They said, say no to Wolverine by next wave, right? That was an actual, that was something that Joe Quesada said back Really? Then. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. I think that led to one of my favorite uh, Fantastic Four jokes, too, is where they just added him to the team for a couple of issues back during the Walt Simonson era. Like him, Spider-Man, Ghost Rider, and the Hulk. And the Hulk was in his, like, monster phase. And it was, like, the most classy <laughs> commercial thing I've ever seen, but it was also amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around the idea of Ghost Rider in any team. It's just like, you know, oh, here's this family, and then here's the demon force of retribution. <laughs> Isn't Ghost Rider in um, in a team book right now? Yes. With Elektra and, like, Red Hulk or something? Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt. Thunderbolts, yeah. <laughs> but there's a new Ghost Rider coming, too. Yes. Yeah, he's... Uh... Written by Felipe Smith, who did the manga Pipo Chu and a couple others, and drawn by Trad Moore, who I think worked on Justin Jordan. Or not Justin Jordan, uh, Luther, Luther Strode, which was written by Justin Jordan. I guess one, 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 one question I have for, uh, for everyone is there's an interesting kind of history in the X Men that, you know, that Joss Whedon did a lot with um, Buffy, where a lot of the external threats or the long-standing villains eventually get subsumed into the group as kind of allies or weird uncles. And they kind of, like, they made jokes about that over the years. Um, I think I remember Pixie making a joke about it when Namor first started cooperating with them after, um, I think that would have been the Utopia or something. Like, how does, how does that work from, you know, uh, a social justice perspective? Yeah, I mean, that's that's something kind of almost constantly from the beginning of the Claremont era is that, like, they let Wolverine in even though everyone around him, like, thinks he's crazy because Xavier believes that anybody can be redeemed. Um, you know, that's how Rogue becomes a member of the team. That's why Magneto ends up as, uh, you know, uh, headmaster of Xavier's school for a while. It's, you know, and... and in this very kind of like comic book, black and white sort of way, the, this idea of like, we'll accept anybody is kind of part and parcel of the like, X-Men don't kill people. And that's what makes us good guys that you see kind of for, you know, as a longstanding theme. So it's like restorative justice, right? Kind of, yeah. But I think it's also like just comic books at the same time. You know, when you realize that if you put Magneto in a comic that you'll sell an extra 20,000 copies, why not make him the focus of the comic? So it's kind of playing against uh, several different uh, aspects. Like, same as the Wolverine thing, I think. The, the Magneto is interesting is that they're giving him his solo series, and it seems that they're very much focusing on the, the Holocaust connection. Um, on the cover, you have him with a helmet made of barbed wire mimicking his hmm. current helmet. Wow. I mean, that's, it's very that's, blatant. That's what they're doing. That's yeah. Almost, I wonder how I mean, long. I guess that's a, that almost sounds I'm like a crucifixion how long they can, thing. It almost sounds like a I'm wondering thing. how long they can do that for. Cause like at this almost point, like, they've had to reset his age twice to, yeah. to well, keep him around. Um, well, I mean, I, I think there's still an appetite for it, oddly enough, and I think it's maybe one of the 
one of the things that, that could kind of should be wound down or jettisoned because we've had a, a decade of X-Men movies now, and I don't want to minimize the tragedy, you know, the, the violence and the senselessness of the Holocaust, but we have a span of 10 years with two X-Men movies that open with the same exact scene. Like, like they, you know, for X-Men first class, they entirely, you know, reshot the scene of, of Magneto being separated from his parents in the camps. And I kind of wonder if we continue, especially um, in the X-Men, to foreground Nazis as this vision of ultimate evil that transcend, you know, Dr. Doom and Thanos or whatever, that it, it, is this kind of a jingoist American um, ploy at kind of, you know, being a smokescreen of, of making it so that we don't have to turn around and look at the things that, you know, that we Americans have been complicit in or the other types of, of, I guess, evil or violence that have happened in, in the 20th century. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it also comes down to relatability. Um, with the, clearly the, the Holocaust is something that we're, that we're all familiar with, um, young readers, old readers. And I, I think that they do that with Magneto a lot. I distinctly remember, I think it was like Ultimate X-Men 3, way back when it first launched. Um, I had this picture on my wall. It was a panel of Magneto had pulled George Bush out of the White House and had like stripped him naked and had him kneeling on the lawn of the White House and was, I guess, was going to try to execute him there or something. So I, I just feel like they... <laughs> They use things that that we're familiar with, things that the public um, wants to see reflected. Um, it's it sort of it can be a bit of a revenge fantasy, which definitely um, first class was. That whole the, well, the Nazi hunting that went on yeah. there. But isn't isn't Luke Cage a far more? Um, I mean, like he's not a mutant, but I, isn't Luke Cage someone who's a far more prescient, more? like immediately relevant and, and radical character for something like that. Mm-hmm. No, I'm actually I'm hoping the Netflix series gives, gives some of that. Yeah. Oh, Could we be, need that I mean, so especially badly. With, this, with this focus on sort of using the Netflix shows as like the street level Marvel universe, as opposed to everything is now heading off into space. You know, I hope that they do more with that than agents of shield have managed to do. I'm yeah. going to say Daredevil won't, though, because I think I think Drew Goddard has a has a pretty long track record as far as that kind of storytelling goes. In terms of his time at Angel and that kind of stuff. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, well, we know he can do sort of the dark detective story through Angel. Um, yeah, but he was. Not, yeah. He he mm-hmm. also kind of presided over some of those troublesome issue, um, parts of that. Like he was one of the main writers in the last season, was he not? Oh, uh, possibly. Mm. Yeah. Season five. Hmm. And Cabin I'm in the Woods. I'm not familiar enough with the series. I'm not familiar oh. enough with the series to know like which something something messed up happened under his watch. Well, that yeah, I mean. Without getting too specific, it was kind of the point where Angel had taken over the evil law firm and they were kind of sort of being subsumed by, um, you know, the evil forces that they had tried to, um, you know, it's kind of a master's tool type, tool type of situation. 
I mean, I think my big hope for the for the Netflix series is to have something that's grounded more firmly in reality, which clearly we haven't gotten with S.H.I.E.L.D., and that pulls from Marvel's huge base of, of, of heroes and villains that we're not ever going to see anywhere else on the screen, um, that whether those are people of color or just other characters who, who are never going to get the chance to be seen otherwise. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, and you know, hopefully, we get a, a picture of New York that is not just white people. Yes, yes. Well, uh, David, you just read um, Azarello and uh, Corbin's Cage, right? Yeah, I think I saw you on Twitter saying something about that. How, well, what, like, how would how would that vision of New York work for the next for the next uh, Netflix series? Do you think, or is that something that we should be using a jumping off point, or it's uh it's complicated the so like cage is rooted in exploitation uh ephemera i guess kind of the like the wrongly convicted fighting the man that kind of thing but with the cage miniseries what Azrello and corbin did was they updated it to like minister society era it's like dead presidents new york which i'm you know personally very fond of i grew up on all those movies but i think that in terms of uh the risks you take in getting the story right like going with that kind of hard-boiled, uh, no-nonsense uh, adaptation would be a not a mistake, but you'd have to you'd have to nail it the first time out. Like it sort of hinges on like the crime aspect as opposed to the heroic aspects. Like it opens with Cage in a strip club, and like a sad mother comes in and says her daughter died in drive-by. Can you help me out? And Cage is initially like, well, this lady's broke, so I probably can't help her at all. And he's more or less built into doing the right thing, which isn't always compelling TV. And I think for the character of Cage, uh, as expanded by like Bendis lately and uh, Jeff Parker and those guys, like he he deserves a lot more. Well, I think the fact that uh, is it is it Jessica Jones. That like she's going to be one of the the, yes. the Netflix oh, yeah, shows. She's getting I a think, show. Yeah, I mean, I think they're leaning more in in that direction. Hopefully. Yeah. But it would be interesting. Like I can't lie, if they could do like a really grim, hard-boiled take on the Marvel universe, I feel like that's something we've only seen in the Blade this far. Really, just the first Blade movie. The second went off into like kind of this glam uh, superhero mode, as opposed to like the gritty crime of the first movie. Yeah, and we don't talk about the third one. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I always forget about the third one. Like, not even out of it just it just barely exists to me. <laughs> but it, I think the second one though deserves some credit though. Um, because it kind of feels like a dry run for Pacific Rim. Oh, and, interesting. And that's still, how, how so on that one? Well, it's Del Toro, right? And he brings together, like, Blade and Stacker Pentecost are both, like, kind of the stoic guys who are, you know, leading this, this multinational, multi-ethnic crew against this apocalyptic force that's dividing virally. And, and kind of viral growth is something that Del Toro has done since way back in Mimic, but you kind of see these these new vampires that are showing up and dividing a lot like the same way that the um, the, the kaijus 
kind of replicated and appears through the drift. But you also look at the cast of that movie, is that they drew from all over to get these guys. You know, you got Ron Perlman as the villain. You've got Norman Reedus um, as the sidekick. And then, like, um, Donnie Yen, that was, I think, maybe his first or his second um, American movie or North American movie. And it, it kind of, it just seemed like there was, they were drawing from something, um, you know, far outside of just let's go street level in the States. Like, they're in Eastern Europe for the entire time. They're like, forget it. We're not going to do New York. We're going to go off to, I think it was in Romania, and bring all these unique characters that actually are, you know, a, a bit more actually diverse than something like Giant Size X-Men number one. Hmm. Yeah, that movie was actually a dry run for uh, Hellboy. Which yeah, that's also good. Yeah. Uh, I think Norman Reedus at one point is wearing a BPRD t-shirt, like in the movie, which is kind of a trip. <laughs> well, Del Toro and wow. uh, Perlman raided a comic shop for all their Hellboy stuff at some point mm-hmm. during the filming. Did not know that. Oh, you know, one question I wanted to make sure I got into you guys, or do you feel like we're losing anything now with, uh, you know, Professor X's role sort of being diminished? Does it not, are we, are we, are we or was it the time for that coming gone? Uh, I think his, his death was kind of necessary because of how the narrative and the metaphors have shifted over time where if, if we're going to keep clinging to those same, the same kind of Magneto, Xavier, yada, yada, and it couldn't move forward into a, where a new generation takes the reins and defines mutancy for their own is kind of, you know, I was kind of happy when he died. Uh-huh. At the end of the is day, he currently dead? I mean, I can't keep track. Yeah, there's like, there may or may not be a Magneto from, the future. I'm sorry, uh, Professor X from the future who's showed up, or that way. He's, well, that's just uh, dead. Our, our Professor X is dead. Yes. Okay. He's dead, and his brain's yeah. in the Red Skull, which is a whole <laughs> other weird metaphor. Whoa! God, that's weird. Whoa! Actually, that's one, not one cool. Of the I, one of the things I really loved about the old Acts of Vengeance back in the day was that you know when. Magneto figured out that um, the Red Skull was actually a Nazi. He just started attacking him immediately. He didn't, like, you know, forget this whole, like, teaming up to take down the X-Men or whoever. He was like, no, you're a Nazi. You've got to die. Yeah, he lost him. I always got to love him. I can't can't not love him. You know, it makes me a terrible person, but I cannot love Magneto for reasons like that. (laughs) Well, I mean, I... Sorry. Uh, in um, in uh, X Force, an uncanny X Force, um, Magneto finds out about Wolverine's secret team, and so he kind of he gets them to go hunt down one of those last Nazi war criminals um, and kills him. And, and he has this kind of talk with Wolverine after, and he said, "You know, you just wrap that up for me, but um, there's going to come a time when you're an old man, and they're going to start coming for you, like the people that." that you're knocking off to prevent X, Y, and Z future from happening, they're going to start coming after you. That he was kind of intimating that Wolverine was going to ultimately stop being the hero and become the villain in that sense. 
Mm. Or even just well, as long uh, as, like everything has consequences. Like you don't get away with anything. Yeah. As long as they don't end Wolverine with Old Man Logan, I'm I'm happy. Just because I deeply dislike Mike Millar. That's a legitimate opinion. <laughs> Definitely legitimate opinion. Um, well, I don't know. I, I one of the things that that we've been batting around that Brett and I were we actually were just batting around is you know is Magneto a Zionist? Like, is that essentially what he's doing in trying to set up an independent mutant state? I mean, yeah, you know, it, it's hard not Zionism to of comic books. say it again. It's it's kind of the cartoonish Zionism of comic books. Like he is the worst nightmare of someone who knows only a little bit about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, like, it's, it's kind of hard not to read the issue in which you learn how he and Xavier met, where like literally both of them are fighting Nazis in Israel. And he grabs a giant, like gold reserves of the third Reich and says, I'm going to use this to build a, a new mutant, you know, kingdom because you know, we need a homeland and we're never going back into the gas chambers. I was like, it's kind of hard not to read that as anything other than like, you know, 1940s style Zionism. But the good thing about Magneto is he didn't take somebody else's country to go do it. Well, I mean, depending, I mean, the weird thing is like they (laughs) gave him Genosha. So it's like, you know, there was a a Zionist project in, you know, post-apartheid South Africa is, well, you know, it, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Getting really mixed. Well, <laughs> they did offer us Uganda, you know, and that would have been even more fucked up. <laughs> so, like, oh, we're just gonna mm. just let you take over land from brown people endlessly and not confront what we did to you back in Europe. Anyway, um, no, but I, it, but the, the, yeah, it's a pretty heavy-handed metaphor that seems like it's right on the surface there, and that I just haven't seen that many people talking about yet. I think uh, yeah, it's one of those things like there was a point where the creation of of Israel was very new and like the X-Men was created in that environment. Like like, Storm died in, or not Storm, her parents died in Egypt during the, I forget the name of the war, amazingly. It's something that happened. Yeah, it was something that happened, you know, a very long time ago for us, but back then it was still new. So I think that mm-hmm. since we've, we've kind of processed the, uh, like the pros and cons, the different aspects of that, of that environment. And now like we can't see it the way they saw it. Like we can't see storm the way Chris Claremont saw a storm. And that changes the uh, conversation as well. Mm-hmm. Which makes it really tough to judge these characters sometimes because you're dealing with, you know, 12 interpretations from 12 writers across 40, 50, 60 years. It's like, which one is true? Which one do you accept and why? Right. Mm. I only accept ones where there's no Wolverine origin story. That's, that's the facts and history. Yeah. I was always, I mean, of the many crimes of, of the Wolverine origins movie, the fact that they just didn't take the, the Weapon X graphic novel and just put that up on the screen is, to me, the biggest crime of them all. Well, you got to give that movie props for having a better Emma Frost than First Class. 
<laughs> not hard to do. Not hard to do. No, I, I said story, though, not movie. I actually haven't seen it because I prefer to not do that to myself. Don't. Just skip it. I saw the first half hour of it and gave up. Uh, does anybody else have anything you, on the issue that you want to make sure we hit on uh, before we before we close out, guys? I, I, I'm just still amazed and like remarkably pleased that we I was able to hail so many amazing people who talk about this stuff on to be on my show at one time. I'm a little bit feeling like um, you know, like I'm uh, like calling the Avengers together. You know, I'm still a little bit shocked with that. I want to make sure that, like, all the members of the Avengers have their opportunity to, like, have their solo arc come out now. Um, So if there's anything else that you really want to make sure we brought to the subject or questions to ask, please do so. Because it's such a good opportunity with all these smart people here. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we hit almost everything that I kind of had on my list. The only sort of thing that I would kind of throw into the, the mix is... I wonder also if the X-Men have a different... Uh, speaking to, to what was said earlier about like how hard it is to think ourselves backward in time, the the fact that the Cold War is over changes a lot as well, because I, I think back to Giant Spies X-Men number one, and it does seem very similar to like the original Star Trek in that, you know, multi nationality and one of them being a Russian who was explicitly like Mm -hmm. a communist and that was presented in a positive light was pretty kind of big for the day and that so much of the 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 X-Men's world was not just about sort of communism in its or you know the Cold War in its domestic sense but in its international sense that the the mutants were seen as uh, a phenomenon that had the potential impact to change the balance of, of U.S.-Soviet relations and of world power, um, that we've kind of lost that a little bit. But isn't that an issue yeah. with all Mar- or a lot of the Marvel characters and that their origins keep on getting updated? And, I mean, Iron Man came out of, you know, at one point it was Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah. At, at another point, it's now the Gulf War. Captain America is still kind of questionable as to what he is. I mean, they keep on kind of but moving Captain the, the goalposts. Captain America is New Deal America. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's I always going to be New Deal America. I mean, it's okay. Like, he got unfrozen. He's, he's all good. Yeah, he's just on ice longer. I actually mm-hmm. like Iron Man sliding um, timescale a lot um, because it really drives home for us just how long the military-industrial complex has dogged us and how <laughs> very similar a lot of these theaters are. I mean, there was that, that Mother Jones article a few months ago talking about just how frequently the United States has been, you know, in a state of war or had, you know, soldiers in an active theater. So, I mean, to me, especially in the Iron Man trilogy, like the films, where the main thing of all three of them is these, white capital it's like it's almost like uh you know scooby-doo on an international scale where all of these the quote-unquote villains were being presented are a smokescreen for you know some white capitalist gain so if we if we take a look at that as being you know afghanistan or iraq or vietnam 
um, or Korea, if, if we kind of look at it as Tony Stark being this kind of Groundhog Day type character, where he keeps waking up in a different cave in a different country, it really is kind of like the Groundhog Day of our own, um, you know, foreign uh, foreign policy hmm. and an American imperialism. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I think Punisher is kind of a dark reflection of what you were saying because he's so tied to Vietnam in my mind, just in terms yeah. of the war in the country and what was going on. And as they update him, I mean, like, he basically is Rambo, the superhero. Yeah, if you watch First Blood, it's it's like what if Punisher didn't have a mission? Like it's just this really sad, broken guy in the woods with a gun, which is totally different from the later Rambo movies, which are less Punishery. Or more, depending on your <laughs> But like the, the real life stuff that comics are drawing from, if I had to add anything, like pay attention to what was going on at the time the comic came out and kind of what the comic has to say about that sort of thing. Because it's like they're never made in just a vacuum. Like someone goes, Oh, this subject is interesting. I wonder if we can uh, make a metaphor for AIDS in an X Men comic. Like all of that. Like, I, I just think it means a lot to know where something comes from. Mm. I agree. I that represents a tipping point or something like that. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate this. Um, I know it's late at night, and, and um, I, I just want to say for one thing, any and all of you guys are welcome back on the show any old time. If you have an article out you'd like to discuss that has anything to do with comics or any sort of geek properties, and you want to talk about it with other people who are geeky about uh, social justice and all that other good stuff, please come on the show, and we'd love to have you back. And thank you so much for the time. Um, this has been all of our hopes and dreams. So uh, thanks again. Well, thank you. Thank you yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, we've been tweeting up a storm, and hopefully we'll have – hopefully when you look through um, at graphic policies – Twitter feed, thank you very much, Brett, for keeping that up this whole time. Um, you'll find some of your words at least paraphrased well. Uh, hopefully folks will find that helpful and useful because I think you guys said some pretty brilliant stuff. So thanks again for your, for doing it. Yeah, thank you very sure. much. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. And I, guess, I guess that is my cue to, to start wrapping up the show. Um, so that wraps up the latest episode of Graphic Policy Radio. Uh, you can catch the archive on Blog Talk Radio or GraphicPolicy.com. Uh, gra- uh, Blog Talk will have it immediately. GraphicPolicy.com will go up on Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and again, I have to thank all our guests who provided an insightful and informative discussion that uh, went beyond my expectations. Thank you again to Steve Adwell, David Brothers, Gene Denby, Emma Hubu, and Kendra James. And uh, we'll have all their information up on our site. So you can connect with them afterwards and follow them along and check out their websites and everything else they're doing. Um, As always, you can catch us every day at graphicpolicy.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and other social networks, all at Graphic Policy. We keep it consistent. Uh, Again, I want to thank everyone, all of our guests, and massive props to Alana for putting it all together. Um, It was, yeah, beyond expectations. Mad standing ovation on, on my end of things. Um, so you'll be able to catch everyone on our site uh, and where to connect with them. Um, so wrapping it all up, I think, uh, we can all agree that keep in mind. So comics might seem like they're a bunch of tight, uh, guys in tights punching each other. 
Uh, but hopefully this proves that there's much more going on and you'll start thinking about the world around you uh, when you're reading them. So until next episode, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. And have a geeky week. <laughs>